invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and then we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 4. We have a, a very important uh, and just wonderful occasion this morning as we'll be installing uh, Adrian Crum to be our pastor of youth and evangelism. And this morning we're going to be looking at the question, uh, what is the relationship between uh, pastors and the church? Uh, what role do they have? How does it work? Um, what does God have in mind by giving us uh, pastors? And so we'll be looking at that this morning under the, the title, How Gospel Ministry Works. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read verses, uh, well, we, we read 1 through 8, but focusing on 1 and 2. This is the Lord's word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> We're going to begin at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And that's where we'll end. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you for this word, and we ask now that your spirit would come and teach it to us, that we'd be, uh, Lord, taught, that we would understand, uh, that we would be changed, and that, uh, Lord, we would be equipped as a church to carry out the ministry you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my uh, favorite questions in life is, how does this thing work? 
Uh, I learned that uh, young. I remember uh, as a boy going to farm auctions with dad, and we'd be wandering around seeing what's for sale. And there would always be an item, maybe an old piece of farm equipment or some antique household item. And uh, the first question would be, what is it? And then uh, the second question would be, well, how does it work? Uh, we, so we'd come upon an old uh, steam engine. Uh, how does a steam engine tractor work? Uh, or a cream separator. How does that work? Or a block and tackle pulley? Well, this morning we want to ask the question, how does gospel ministry work? What are the necessary pieces of a functioning church that's doing what uh, God has called it to do, that's being what God has called it to be? What are the functioning pieces and what does each part do? Uh, this past Thursday evening, we had the privilege of installing John Terrell as our church planner at Living Hope. Uh, this morning, we are installing Adrian Crum as our pastor of youth and evangelism. And it's a great opportunity to ask the question, well, how is this supposed to work? How does a pastor, any congregation, work together to accomplish gospel ministry? One of the, uh, one of the keys to understanding how a thing works is to understand what a thing is for. Right? So if you just take a cream separator, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these things, um, that, it, you know, boys and girls, if I ask you, what is a cream separator for? You get, well, it separates cream? Yeah, that's right. Um, what happens, it's a fascinating thing, actually. I, I did a little research on this. A cream separator, how does it, I mean, it separates the cream from the milk. So you get the cream and the, and the skim milk, they get separated. Well, how do you do that? You run it through a, a strainer of some sort, a filter? No, how you do that is that back in the day, they would pour it into a, a bowl on the top. There'd be a handle on the side, and, and there's, a, there's a gear underneath, and that spins that bowl rapidly. And the centrifugal force pushes the heavier material, which is the milk, to the sides. And the lighter material, being the cream, then can, uh, comes together in the middle, and there are separate spouts for each, from, for the middle and for the sides. And so you spin the handle, and the bowl spins, and the force separates the cream from the milk, and it, they pour out their individual spouts. It's fascinating. That's what a cream separator is for. That's how it works. Well, what's a church for? A church is for the worship of God and the making of disciples. That's what a church, that's why we exist, the worship of God and the making of disciples. That means that churches are not ends in and of themselves. We don't exist for our own sake. Local churches are Jesus' way of accomplishing his mission. Uh, J.D. Greer, quoting Christopher Wright uh, in his book, Gaining by Losing, says this, The church exists for mission. Jesus did not give a mission to his church. He formed a church for his mission. Without the mission, a church is not a church. It's just a, a group of disobedient Christians hanging out. Without the mission, the church is not a church. It's a group of disobedient Christians hanging out. In other words, you see, the local church exists to proclaim the gospel for the gathering of the lost and the discipling of the found. Remember the Great Commission, go make disciples, make disciples. Our Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 25 says, Christ has given to the visible church the ministry, oracles, and ordinances for the gathering and perfecting of the saints. Same idea. 
making disciples, gathering the, the, the lost, perfecting the found. So a church's success then is not determined by its size, its buildings, its programs, or even the amount of enthusiasm that can get worked up on a Sunday service. A church's success is determined by this, this one thing. Are we making disciples? Are the lost being gathered in? Are the found being trained in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is, is, do we see this happening? So that we're actually making disciples, people who, who know Jesus and love Jesus and strive to obey Jesus and uh, trust in Jesus and are eagerly looking forward to his return, who long for his appearing, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4. That's what the church is called to do. That's the mission. Well, if that's what it's called to do, that's what it's for, how does it work? How does that happen? And it happens, as we're going to see this morning, it happens through the ministry of the word, the gospel, as it transforms lives and equips the church for the work of ministry. This morning, we're going to, uh, in this message, we're going to have, I'm going to have a charge for Adrian Crum as he's coming out to be our new pastor, and then a charge to the congregation as you receive him as a pastor. Let's first look at the charge in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. The charge is wrapped with solemnity. It is a very sober, intense command that Paul is giving. He's not just saying, preach the word. Uh, he, takes, he uses four consecutive intensifiers to reveal the profound weight, the significance of this charge. The word charge itself, is, uh, it's not just a command. Paul isn't just appealing to his apostolic authority. The word here is, uh, can be translated to solemnly testify, like you're in a court of law. You see, uh, Paul is testifying in the presence of great and awesome realities. And it is those realities that give the weight and the gravitas to the charge. It's helpful to remember where Paul is. He's writing from Rome in prison and his death is near. He, <laughs> he tells Timothy, I've, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race. Uh, there's laid up for me now a crown of righteousness. But Paul senses that his, his ministry is coming to its completion and in a few months uh, he will be put to death. And so there's something about facing the reality of your death when it's close at hand that, that sobers you, that makes you aware of eternal things in a, in a, in a brand new way. Um, the things of heaven and, and the, the realities of God and what it means to be lost, those things become so much more clear when you're facing your death. Well, those, these are the, the sobering realities, you see, that Paul has in mind. And so as he's writing to Timothy, he's writing with this, this, this fresh clarity as his death approaches. And these are the things he's going to point to. I charge you first, in the presence of God. Every aspect of every life, of course, that's lived in this world is lived in the presence of God, before the face of God. God knows and sees it all. But Paul wants Timothy to understand that there is, uh, in the ministry of the gospel, 
the ministry of the gospel has a particular significance to God. It is carried out for good or ill under God's close scrutiny, God's focused gaze. You see, the ministry of the word is the ministry of his word. Not the pastor's word, not Paul's word, but God's word. The minister is an ambassador sent from the throne room of heaven. And God takes special notice of the behavior of His ambassadors. He has a particular and zealous concern for how they carry out their calling. Because it is through the ministry of His Word that God is going to accomplish His saving purposes in the world. That's why it's such, a, it's such an awful thing when pastors, when pastors forget who sent them and, and be, begin to twist the message to make it more palatable. Well, you, you do this in the presence of God who sent you. Adrian, it is very easy for gospel ministers to unconsciously assume that, that our ministry is carried out before the gaze of men and for the approval of men. It's, it's so easy to do. But Paul wants to root out that lie. Gospel ministry is carried out primarily before the face of God and for the approval of God. And God is paying attention. And Paul wants Timothy to understand it. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus is also present, the glorious subject of the word. It's all about him. Remember what he said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. He opened up the scriptures and explained that, uh, that all that it said was about him. Uh, the whole Bible is about God's plan to redeem all things through the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed Son of God. So that, we, that Paul can say the gospel is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It belongs to him. It is about him. It is a, it is, uh, the preacher's message is a message of what God has accomplished in Jesus for the salvation of sinners through the life and death and resurrection and reign of Christ. And so Paul charges Timothy, preach the word in the presence of the one who is the subject of the message. Uh, men, imagine someone asking you at a work party to describe your wife. How would you do that? What would you say? Well, now imagine doing it while she's standing next to you. Now what would you say? The subject is right there. And Paul wants Timothy to recognize that's how he goes about his gospel ministry. The subject is right there. And so we better get it right. And we better make sure that Jesus is being proclaimed and portrayed in his, all of his truth and his glory, we better get it right. I heard a song yesterday. And this is going to be a vague, I never heard this song before, some Christian song, that the gospel is, it's not the message that Jesus is inviting you. So here's the gist of it. The gospel is not that Jesus is inviting you to be saved. The gospel is the good news that you already are. That's the gist of it. Well, that's not true. That's, that's not the gospel. You, you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. So you see, as a, 
as a minister, when you say things that are not true, Jesus, he's, he's standing like right there. He hears it. And he knows his message. He's the one who gave it. And so Paul charges Timothy in every gospel ministry, when you carry out that ministry, remember, he's right there. That adds a, a sobriety, a weight to what we're about. When we speak in the name of Christ, in the presence of Christ, we better get it right. Because this Jesus, Paul says, is coming to judge the living and the dead. He, Paul's just piling up. The weight keeps piling on. Not only does Jesus see, Jesus judges. There's an accounting to be had on the final day. Timothy will carry out his ministry as a man who must one day stand in the presence of the king and give an account for his ministry. And he will preach to saints and sinners who must all do the same. You see, the sobering truth of gospel ministry is that both the messenger and the congregation are responsible before Jesus for the message. How they speak it and what they do with it. How they receive it. How they respond to it. When Paul met with the, uh, the elders from Ephesus at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, you can read this. He, it's the last time he's going to see them. And he tells them, I know that I will not see you again. But my hands are innocent of the blood of all. Why? Well, because I did not shrink from proclaiming to you the whole counsel of God. You see, Paul is letting these men know that they and everyone who heard his preaching, who heard his, was, was under his ministry, if they experienced blood, if they experienced judgment, if they were lost, he was not responsible for it. Their blood was not on his hands. They were responsible for it. He had proclaimed the whole council. They had not received it. Adrian, as you take up your calling to minister the word in this congregation and in this community, tell the whole story. Proclaim the whole counsel, right? Don't leave out the parts that offend. Be innocent of blood. And congregation, as, we receive, as, you, as you receive gospel ministry, there will be an accounting for how you receive it. Do you shrug your shoulders? Do you just sit there with a the critical spirit? Do you let it, you know, water off a duck's back? What do we do with this message? Because there will be an accounting. And it's coming soon, Paul says, by his appearing in his kingdom. The word appearing can refer either to Christ's birth, you find that sometimes some places in the Bible, or to his second coming. I think Paul has the second primarily in mind here. But, but they're both true. You see, what, what Paul is saying to Timothy is that, Timothy, um, I'm giving you this charge in the presence of the Jesus who has appeared in this world through the virgin birth, lived his life, died on a cross, was raised from the dead, has ascended to heaven, and is coming again. All these grand, glorious realities of the gospel that stand as majestic mountains 
of spiritual truth and goodness and glory. Paul says, Timothy, preach in that context with, with those realities in mind that the kingdom of God has actually invaded this world and that things are being made new and one day will be revealed in all the glory of full redemption. Preach in the presence of the king of that kingdom. The one who has already conquered, who is now reigning, and who is coming again. See, gospel ministry is about these, these glorious, eternal realities. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king is coming. The, the, the scripture ends with Jesus promising, Behold, I am coming soon. This world is a mist. This life is a is passing away. We will soon, soon be in the presence of the Lord. I am coming soon. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. And so those are the realities, you see, that, that presses. You can see it in Paul's life. These are the things that have pressed upon his own ministry. This is why he, he implores people, beseeches, pleads, be reconciled to God. That God has made a way in Jesus Christ. He who had no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. God has made a way for sinners to be purged, cleansed, forgiven, atoned, made right before God, no matter what they've done, by the fact of all of our sin being placed on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness being placed upon us. And Paul says, we, we implore you then, take hold of that gospel. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Why would you be lost? When the Savior has come, when salvation has been, has been prepared and a way has been opened, have mercy on your soul. Timothy, preach the message that Christ has come. The kingdom is at hand. A divine order has been issued from the throne that men must repent and believe, bowing before King Jesus, or they will be lost. That's the message that you find in the New Testament. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message. And the promise is that those who do will not only be reconciled to God into this life, but will be made heirs with Jesus Christ of everlasting life in a new heaven and a new earth where everything is made as it ought to be. And the warning is that those who refuse then will be subject to, they will be cast into hell. That's, that's what Scripture teaches. Those are, that's what's at stake in the ministry. That's the message that Timothy now is charged to proclaim. And through that word, Jesus will gather his elect and Jesus will build up his saints and Jesus will judge the world. Through that word. It's an awesome message of infinite importance. So preach it. Adrian, preach the word. The word preach here means to herald or proclaim. Uh, Hendrickson says, Heralding is the divinely authorized proclamation of the message of God to men. It is an exercise of ambassadorship. Divinely authorized proclamation of God's message to men. A herald. So the primary calling then of a, of a preacher is, is to proclaim, the, to herald the king's message. And whether that happens from the pulpit, whether that happens in counseling, whether it happens one-on-one -on -one discipling or in evangelizing, 
That is the core of the minister's calling, to proclaim the message of what God has accomplished for sinners in Jesus Christ, his son, and to herald the imminent return of the king who's going to judge the living and the dead. You cannot overstate the the gravity of this mission, this message. And we are to call then, urge men and women to repent of their sins and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life. And so Paul will say to Timothy, verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. That's not just for men who've been gifted with uh, the, the, uh, the gift of evangelism, as we'll read in, in Ephesians 4. Every pastor is to do the work of evangelist. As we preach that message, that's what fulfilling the ministry looks like. That's the charge. Now, to what purpose? To what end? Well, let's look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, I'm looking at verse 11 and 12, where Paul explains that God, that Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, Paul has explained that Jesus Christ, um, as a conquering king, has ascended on high and and led captives in his train. Of course, everyone knew what he's talking about. When, when a king conquered in those days, uh, he would enter back into his hometown uh, with a grand parade, and there would be the captives, that, the people that he had conquered, the slaves that he had defeated, and, and has brought them now into the city to, to work as slaves. Evidences of his victory. And he would give gifts, evidences of his generosity. And Paul says, well, King Jesus is, is just like that. King Jesus uh, has led captives in his train, but they're not poor, defeated slaves. They are former rebels who've been transformed by the power of God into sons and daughters of God. They are the more, they're more free than they've ever been in their entire life. They are heirs of a new heaven and a new earth. They are victorious and exalted sons. And when Jesus gives gifts to men, he doesn't give earthly bounty, but heavenly treasures. And he does so through these offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. When Paul thinks about what is the most wonderful thing God could give to his church, God could give to his people, Paul thinks in terms of apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Uh, Those gifts vary in terms of focus and gifting and authority, but they all share one thing in common. They are all ministries of the Word. They're all messengers of the Word. When Paul thinks of what what, what Jesus could give to bless His church, he thinks of ministers. People who speak the Word. In counseling, preaching, discipling, evangelizing, whatever it might be, these are the gifts. And, and what I want us to see this morning is the reason for these, these men, these ministries of the Word. What are they for? Why did Jesus give these gifts to His church? And the answer is immediately given in the text to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the ministry of the Word is for the equipping of the saints for their ministry. Right? That's, that's evident in the text. Now, the word ministry here in verse 12, uh, it's, it's, it's the word from which we get deacon. It means to serve. It's any act of service discharged in genuine love. So what Paul is saying is that for the church to work correctly, the word ministry must be equipping the saints 
for their love ministries, both in the body and outside the body. That God's plan, you see, for a functioning church is the minister sort of is the handle. And the word is spinning that bowl and ministry is happening in a variety of ways, in lots of different ways. But works of love and service are happening as, as God's people have been equipped by the gospel, empowered by the Spirit, to do the work of ministry. You see, if, if, the, if the preacher is preaching and, and the congregation isn't being saturated with spontaneous acts of love and service to one another and to our community, if that's not happening, something's wrong. Right? The, if you've got a cream separator and you spin the handle and the bowl doesn't turn, something's broke. There's a, there's a pin in there. Maybe it came loose. I don't know. Something's, something's not connected. And it's, see, I think it's important for us to grasp this because I think it's easy for us to, to assume that as long as the pastor is spinning the handle, church is doing just fine. As long as he keeps spinning it correctly. Well, he needs to spin it correctly, but, but that's not how gospel ministry works. The assumption you see so often is that the pastors do the ministry and the congregation just receives the ministry. Well, that's clearly not what Paul has in mind. It's not what Christ had in mind. The pastor is called to feed the sheep, not to make them fat and happy, but to feed the sheep, to equip them for spontaneous acts of love and service and outreach. It's exactly what you see in the New Testament. Think about Acts chapter 2, where you read that people are selling their possessions and giving it to the poor. How did that happen? The disciples, the apostles did not make a new law that if you had, you know, above this amount of money, you needed to, to get rid of that and give it to the poor. There wasn't a rule. People spontaneously recognizing the grace of God to them and, and recognizing their call by King Jesus to serve, people discovered, well, here's a, here's a way we could serve. We can give generously out of the things that God has given to us to bless people. It's a spontaneous act. You think about Dorcas, chapter 10 of Acts. Who is called, she's a, described as a, a woman full of good works and acts of charity. Full of them. Now, they didn't make a rule. Dorcas, listen, we need you to step up. Uh, there's some things here that aren't getting done. That's, that's not how it works. Dorcas loves Jesus. And Dorcas loves to serve the church of Jesus. And Dorcas loves to be engaged in her community. Full of good works and acts of charity. Uh, there, there's many ways this is already happening. I, I, so much of it just is known about. But people bringing meals, uh, people fostering children, adopting children, uh, people caring for the shut-ins, the sick. People ministry. If you're ministering, if you're a mom and you're ministering to to you know some some young ones or, or older ones, that's a ministry. Uh, so any act of love and service and sacrifice that, that is spilling out of your life because you love Jesus, that's what's being talked about. That's what Paul is calling us to. And the preaching of the gospel, you see, is meant to equip you for all of these things. That means that when Adrian now begins as our pastor of youth and evangelism, he isn't coming to do the work of youth and evangelism. He's coming to equip us to do the work of youth and evangelism. He's coming to equip us. That's how gospel ministry 
works. Brothers and sisters, I, um, I'm excited about what God has in store for us as a church as we grow in our understanding and commitment to the way God intends the church to work. If we will make sure that preaching and teaching do not become ends in themselves, but means to the end of mission, and that God has called all of us here together to participate in some ways in the ministry of loving each other, building each other up, and engaging our community, making disciples, well, that's a church that's functioning. That's a church that's working. How's that going to happen? Let me end with this. It happens through the gospel. There's no other way. It's how it happened in Acts, the book of Acts. It's how it happened throughout the history of the church. You see, it's the gospel proclaimed of all that God is for us in Jesus Christ, in spite of all that we deserve. As we, as we see Jesus, the one who was crucified for our sin, now reigning at the right hand of God, of God, and that Jesus is with us. He's with us. He loves us. He's called us to glorious things. He's called us to move past self-service, to move past just living for the comforts of what this world can provide. He's called us into the glory of his mission. J.D. Greer again says, the gospel creates a culture in which people leave their comfort to demonstrate the beauty and the power of the gospel outside the camp, Hebrews 13. And as they do, people you would never expect to step foot in a church like the Philippian jailer begin to ask the reason for the hope and the generosity at work within us, 1 Peter 3. And soon enough, by God's grace, they will be asking, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16.30. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see that happening more and more here as we serve each other, as we begin reaching out, Maybe start doing a Bible study with a neighbor. Maybe just praying. Whatever the gifts that God has given to you, using them. See, gospel ministry is just living normal life with gospel intention. Just normal life with gospel intention. May God grant that as the pastors preach and counsel and teach and disciple and, and others are taking up that, that work, are being equipped and we're, that, that acts of spontaneous love and charity and mercy would flow and that disciples would be made, that sinners would be brought in, converted. There's sinners here already. Sinners would be converted, made into children of the Most High God and that together we're a church that's functioning the way God meant the church to function. Amen. God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. Oh, Father, we thank you for preachers and pastors who, who speak it and teach it. Thank you, Lord, that you equip the saints for their work of ministry through it. Father, I pray that you would just lead us as a church into greater fruitfulness as we understand how the church is meant to work. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us a vision for how we could use our particular context and circumstance and gifts to participate intentionally in the ministry of blessing and serving, of loving, of reaching out. Father, we do this together. I, I just pray that we would encourage one another in these things and, and that we would see you at work transforming us as a church and making us more fruitful for the glory of King Jesus. And we give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.
<laughs> we're going to sing together. Tell you what, we're going to, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go, no, we're going to sing. <clears throat> we're going to sing. 452, would you stand with me? We're going to sing verses 1, 3, and 4. This is a, this is a good song. Let's, let's think about the words as we sing it. Adrian, I'm going to ask you the following questions as you take up your call. Here as a pastor of Youth and Evangelism at Harvest Church, we thank the Lord for you, brother. This is something, I think 2013 is the first time um, that we sort of sat down and talked together, and, um, and now you're, you're here to serve with us, and, and we thank the Lord for it. With uh, Rachel and your family, um, we're so happy that you're here. And so, Adrian, now before the Lord, uh, would you respond to these following questions? Adrian, are you now willing to take the charge of this congregation as its pastor of youth and evangelism in agreement with your declaration when you accepted its call? By God's grace, I am. Do you, Adrian, then conscientiously believe and declare as far as you know in your own heart that in taking upon you this charge, you are influenced by a sincere desire to promote the glory of God and the good of his church? I do. And then finally, do you solemnly promise, Adrian, that by the assistance of the grace of God, you will endeavor faithfully to discharge all the duties of a pastor to this congregation and will be careful to maintain a deportment in all respects, becoming a minister of the gospel of Christ? By God's grace, I will. Amen. And then I have 
four questions for you, the congregation, and I'd like to uh, ask all the, the members to respond by saying, we do. Do you, the people of this congregation, continue to profess your readiness to receive Adrian Crum, whom you have called to be your minister? Do you promise then to receive the word of truth from his mouth with meekness and love and to submit to him in the due exercise of discipline? Do you promise to encourage him in his arduous labor and to assist his endeavors for your instruction and spiritual edification? And then finally, do you promise to continue to him while he is your pastor, that worldly maintenance which you have promised, and whatever else you may see needful for the honor of religion and his comfort among you? Then on the basis of your answers and yours, I uh, announce that Adrian has been installed as pastor of youth and evangelism here at Harvest Church. And let's uh, come before the Lord and ask his blessing. Oh God in heaven, we are just men poor, weak, sinful men. And yet, Lord, you've, you've called us to be ministers of the word. And I pray for Adrian. Thank you so much for the gifts that you've given to him. Thank you for his passion for the, Jesus Christ, his concern for the lost, his love for the youth. I thank you, Lord, for the way that those gifts and graces have come together, that, that Adrian, um, Lord, you've, you've gifted him, but the gifts, Lord, are not sufficient. We need your presence and your power. And so we ask, Lord, for your, um, your presence and power. That as Adrian speaks, Lord, you would take that word by your spirit and make it effective. And that we would have the joy of being equipped by Adrian in the work of raising up our, our children in the Lord and, and engaging our community with the gospel. And Lord, that we would see you at work through Adrian's ministry, making us more effective and faithful and fruitful as the church of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for the congregation that, that we would experience this to be, Lord, your good gift to us. And that as, as we are equipped, Lord, we would with joy lay hold of your calling on our lives to do the work of ministry. And that, Lord, we would just see... Uh, an overflow of spontaneous acts of love and sacrifice and mercy and, and charity in, in our body and in our community for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the, the fulfilling of his mission, looking forward to his appearing, his coming again. And God, we, we ask all this in dependence, but also in confidence, for you've promised to be with us. We, we ask, Lord, that... Um, you would just, Lord, help us to be the church that you've called us to be. And we'll give you all the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.